Welcome to the EQIQ podcast, where our goal is to foster connection and deepen your ecological intelligence. I'm Aaron Henderson, and our guest today is a Zimbabwean author and educator, Sarah Savory. The daughter of world-famous ecologist Alan Savory, who created and developed the holistic management framework, Sarah is a deep worker in her own right and is passionate about getting those same amazing insights and frameworks to children and local communities and even governments in, in her native Zimbabwe. It's a real pleasure to welcome Sarah to the show today and, and hear her insights and what she's got to tell us. Uh, Sarah, welcome to Week IQ. Thank you very much for having me. Yeah, it's a, it's a real pleasure to host you today, Sarah. As I mentioned to you one time in a Facebook thing there, you really, um, you really let fly with your, with your ideas on the, when you post something. It's, they're usually quite, <laughs> quite long, <laughs> but they're very, uh, very succinct, very, very, uh, very nice. So I just said to someone over there, someone was mentioning your father. Um, I was just mentioning, I'm sure Sarah's got her own uh, deep things that, uh, that she's got going on over there. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Well, mainly trying to simplify everything. <laughs> yeah. So I know you're really big into storytelling, Sarah, because you know you're an author and you've re- you're 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 working on a book now. That's the second one is not out yet, right? That yeah. So I um, a couple of years ago I wrote a children's book um, just because I got irritated with people not knowing what pangolins were. Yeah. So I thought the best way to educate. Um, children and adults was through storytelling because the parents have to read the book to the children or the teachers or mm-hmm. so that started an idea that has just grown um that book really took off I didn't expect it to it was just a local Zimbabwean thing and it's sort of t- taken off globally and it got picked up with by Penguin Random House and mm-hmm. or, and a Spanish uh, and an Argentinian publisher who's translated it into Spanish so mm-hmm. Um, that started me on the educational books for holistic management. So I've got one um, pretty much ready to be published in the next couple of weeks that teaches uh, children about holistic management and mainly the tool of holistic planned grazing. And then I've got another one written and illustrated, which we're still going to do the layout for, which is teaching uh, people about the importance of changing the context in which we make our decisions. Okay, but, but these are actually still kids' books, right? Yes, they're illustrated, fun children's book. The next one is called That's How We Roll, and it's about a dung beetle and a pangolin that get told about <laughs> holistically managed land, and they set off to find it. Yeah, it's, a, it's such a great idea. You mentioned uh, one time before that you actually, uh, I don't know if it's 50% or more, but you said a large part of your audience is actually the adults, the, the parents that read it to the kids. Yeah, so a lot of I've had a lot of uh, sort of uh, I've started off. I even teach holistic management at um, a couple of schools here in Harare, which is very new. And I had some of the parents were saying, "Oh, that's absolute rubbish." And now I've got those parents are the biggest supporters because their children have said, "No, no, you have to listen." <laughs> ah, what do you mean the the holistic management system? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. So okay. Interesting. Okay. So I think parents, adults are very stuck in their ways, and mm-hmm. children are very open to new thinking. So through children, I think they they're better at telling their parents um, how to how to manage their world. <laughs> yeah, it's a very it's a very unique approach actually. It's a I mean storytelling is quite common. Also, I'm from Australia. I know the um, indigenous Aboriginals over there. Storytelling is very very big. But um, today we kind of we we don't really tell stories so much anymore. Especially in no, the I think people I find, learn uh, much better uh, through stories. Yeah, yeah. I think it's, it's really... It's all fun. 
Go ahead. What was it, Sarah? It's much more fun to be told a story and learn it. And you will tend to remember it better if it's told uh, a different way, not just as facts, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I definitely agree. It's a really big thing for me. I, I, I work a lot with analogies. It's got a Michelle in Hebrew. Yeah. And I think those analogies, it's, very, very, uh, it's a very, very powerful tool to use to teach people information rather than just giving the information. Yeah, exactly. My dad's very good at using analogies. And one of my favorite ones is, um, is someone's got the bull firmly by the udder. Yeah, I've <laughs> heard you use that a few times before. <laughs> So tell me, just to let a few people, just let a few people know, Sarah, that don't know. I know what it is because I've read most of your book, but I kind of haven't got it yet. It's it's still on the way. Um, what is a pangolin? <laughs> it's not an armadillo, is it? Something. Else. No, no. A pangolin is um, the only mammal on the planet that has scales, mm. and it eats ants and it eats ants and termites, and it's a really incredibly um, Jurassic looking type type animal. It's uh, very unusual. They're highly intelligent. They're very shy. Um, and they're they are the most trafficked mammal on the planet, more than it's than crazy. elephant tusks or rhino horn or yeah, they're wow. by far the most trafficked, yeah. So so the, but there's they're endangered now, there are still quite a few of them in, in Africa. No, they, they're very, very, very endangered. Um we we just know basically because there's four species in Asia and four species in Africa, and the amount of scales being confiscated is just terrible signs. It's very of how many are being poached, so their numbers are really low. But it's hard to say how many there are because they're they're very reclusive and shy animals. What do people use that for? Scales. Same as rhino horns, so it's just uh-huh. heritage. And uh, yeah. people, yeah. Actually, just to, just to let our listeners know, given maybe you know or not, I used to study, uh, for a short time, I studied Chinese medicine with a very big um, scholar of Chinese medicine, and he researched it for many, many thousands of years back from the original texts. And he told me that all the. Um, the approach of using, you know, the penis of the tiger and the horn of the rhino and everything, it, it's a very recent kind of thing and it wasn't so accepted at the time. It, it's, not a, it's not a valid form of, of medicine, really. Oh, wow, that's fascinating. Yeah, it's so a cultural, it, it was a cultural thing that was unaccepted at the time and, and, so it, and it just held on through communism. Oh wow, that's that's really interesting to know. And of course, the the more the demand is pushed up, the more the more they will get poached. Yeah, exactly. I mean, fr- from the time of communism, the Chinese kind of said, "Okay, we're going to keep this bit because it's interesting, and we're not going to keep that bit." It's very yeah, it's a bit of a yeah. Wow, that's fascinating. I'll you'll have to tell me more about that. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, a you storytelling is a really big thing with you. I wonder if you could give you uh, a few insights just for people that don't know um, about when you started to begin to understand your, your father's work more deeply from, from, your, from your story. I mean, when you were growing up, you obviously probably weren't totally aware of what he's doing. When, when did it become a thing for you? When did you start thinking about it? Um, it's Well, always growing up, I was very passionate about wildlife and um, extremely passionate about wildlife, I should say, obsessed, or all animals. Um, so I used to argue with my dad and tell him that he could look at the bigger picture and I would say, well, the little guys. Um, and he he was often saying to me, look at the bigger picture. And, and at the time, 
I, I didn't fully understand, obviously, all the the implications of it. And then when I started really getting into it and realizing it was was probably when I so it's probably about ten years ago now, or a bit more, when I when I wrote started writing the book and saw the conflict over one animal. So so I I saw how people are concentrating on one species or and 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 people will argue and fight and say they've got a better idea or so so I just saw a lot of segregation and separation and then I understood that we can't save any species without looking at at the whole picture. And um and I think I I genetically think like my dad. So it's it's it hasn't been difficult for me to understand um holistic the, the need to to shift our context. Um uh, so yeah, that that's it's probably been about ten years where I've really, really got my teeth sunk in and getting more and more traction and more and more understanding of the whole thing. Must have been really interesting growing up. I mean, for you, it's probably just regular to hear hyenas and lions crying in the background. But yeah. <laughs> for most of us, that's, that's an unusual upbringing. Uh, how, how was it growing up with a, with a father who's an ecologist and you're always in touch with, the, with nature, both domestically and, and, you know, wildly? I know. I just, I think it's the best upbringing in the world. You couldn't yes. ask for a better one. And I think... Most Zimbabweans, even if we live in the cities, um, have that connection with nature because it's, it's mm. like an hour's drive in any direction to be out. Um, and now my children are growing up like that. And my children have, since they were little, they stay, you know, in my dad's camp by the river in Big Falls and the hyenas will come right into camp and the lions and, and they call me. They say, Mom, <laughs> can you come and get us? And I say, no, not not yet. <laughs> But um, it's just lovely, and now they now they love it. You know, they're six years old and nine years old now, and they just absolutely love that life. And we're just so lucky. You know, I took them the other day, and they were swimming in the mud pools where the elephants bath. And mm. we could not have a better upbringing, all of us here. So we're really, really lucky. Tell me, I'm curious with the with the animals. There is it dangerous? Like you, when we're right near your house, you know, they're just aware um, of how to treat the animals, or. Yeah, no, it's just wonderful. Um, I, I don't think it's it's dangerous as such. You know, for me, being in a city is far more dangerous being run over by a car or something. So my my kids are well aware that they mustn't run off on their own, you know, and uh, we just, you know, just being aware of it and, and careful. And, like, if we go anywhere at night, if we walk around the camp, I, you know, we have flashlights and I teach them, you have to look around before yeah. you walk. So it's just basic common sense, yeah. you know, not but we never feel in danger or anything like that. No. Mm. I, I love it. It's a, I actually I had a small experience. It might sound different, but for me it's very similar. Uh, where I live, it's it's in Jerusalem, and it's not it's not a full on city. It's not like New York, but it is. It's not the countryside. And one night the the streetlights went off, and I was like so happy about it. For two days there was no streetlights, and I was like, oh, at night it's dark. You know, and I, I'm very sensitive to that. So I can yeah. really understand when you're in the natural environment, it's dangerous, though. not dangerous, but it's real. It's, it's very yeah, exactly. And it's peaceful okay. like at night. So we have no, um, my dad and my dad's camp in particular, I mean, we go, we travel all over the country, but um, in my dad's camp, there's no electricity or anything. So at night, it's, we just sit by the campfire and huge herds of elephants will come past and, 
um, it's just it's just really peaceful and and lovely. The fireflies, the little scorpions will come out at night, and spiders, and it's just it's just amazing to see the little birds nesting and snakes and whatever. It's it, you're you're amongst. I think we're where we should be. I always only feel at peace when I'm in a situation like that. I hate being in cities and mm. and out of con out of uh, connection with that sort of thing. And, and tell me when you when you're growing up on the you know those fireside was there storytelling and stuff was it a thing with thing with your family? Oh yes, very much. Lots mm. of fireside stories, and um, again, I think it's a very Zimbabwean. I think you know there's so many Zimbabweans with connection to to the bush with with parents that have worked in in sort of wildlife or on farms or whatever so my children's absolute favorite thing particularly my son is to listen to my dad's stories he he just loves sitting by the fire and at night with my dad when he's got a glass of whiskey and his pipe and he tells stories of about wildlife and when he was a child so those are really good stories wow it's amazing. So you know, in Africa, I, I that's just my assumption. I feel it's quite evident that conservation of of uh, of wild animals and wild places is a special work. But that being said, global conservation at times tends to be like the fallback position for an engagement with the local ecological problems or dysfunctions. I know your father once said, "It's enough. It's not enough anymore to just uh, conserve. We need to regenerate." How, how do you see the picture of conservation harmonizing with the work of land regeneration through domestic livestock? Um, you know, it's, it's, very, it's a very difficult one. I hate the word. Um, one of my worst words at the moment is sustainability because <laughs> if you come out and, and get out there and see what's on the ground, we don't want to sustain that. It's, it's desert. We need to regenerate it. Um, so I think, you know, it's, it's very disheartening because I, I go out now into these communal areas and into the national parks and just see, watch it getting worse and worse every year and, and watch people fight about who, who has the best idea. And, and, and they keep treating symptoms of our reductionist thinking. So they isolate species, they isolate um everything and try to manage it in isolation when nothing can function in isolation. So, but at the same time, all conservationists, particularly in Africa have been, have grown up being taught that livestock cause damage. So there is still a lot of resistance to that. And, um, it's, it's a very, very hard, uh, belief to overcome. Uh, but I think just, because we're getting now to rock bottom, we have a lot more conservationists interested in in what we're doing. Um, hopefully, before it's too late, uh, we will get we will get some a lot more action. We're having a lot of mobilisation now with communities mm. who are like on the outskirts of national parks and things like that. But the national parks themselves, like Zambezi National Park, for example, in Vic Falls is in a worse state than the communal area. Mm. So, I mean, how, yeah. how, how do, it, you know, in terms of a holistic grazing um, section of holistic management, how does that impact on the wild areas? I mean, because you can't manage so much the wild areas in the same way over there, right? Well, I, you see, again, it's just there's so much anti um, 
livestock. So it's not being done anywhere within a national park area. There are small pockets of it starting, beginning. But, um, you know, you can't discuss any practice until you have the context and know what you need. So so it's it's just getting what we need to do first, I think, is get people to rather rather than getting people who will argue about a practice is get people to understand the decision-making process and develop a context and then the right practice will become obvious without anyone telling them what to do. Mm. But um, j- j- I want to go into the context in a minute because that's the main thing that some um, holistic manager I think is maybe famously but uh, sometimes a bit overlooked. <laughs> there you but, um, go. <laughs> yeah, very overlooked. Um, but you just mentioned before those wild areas, is that mean if the context is a cause for it, you could, you would, you could run domestic livestock in those wild areas to, to regenerate the areas? Yes, absolutely. I mean, uh, Africa Center for Holistic Management, we've been running a management herd of livestock there for over 20 years amongst the wildlife and their biodiversity increases every year in spite of really bad rainfall for the last 17 years with this last year being the worst ever. We usually, we have an average rainfall there between six and 700 mils. And this year, last year we had 280 mils. Mm. So and but- our river still flowed in, in parts. We still had water in the river the whole year. Um, so we had a lot more wildlife on it this year because of the drought and the bare ground all around. Mm. And is the lack of uh, um, predators over there, is that, is that an issue for the wild areas being regenerating them, like self-regenerating? Um, yeah, that's again why we have to use the, the livestock in many situations because there's just not the balance of the predator-prey relationship. Um, but, you know, the more you manage holistically the more uh, the, and the more you regenerate the land with the tool, the more the biodiversity and the wildlife can start to do the job themselves and hopefully with the correct management of the wildlife on the game management side and decision-making there, um, we can start to increase numbers. Mm, yeah. Now, now I can start here. We're hearing the context coming in, the decision-making coming in, because it seems like there's a few different areas. It's not just everything is just put the livestock on it and, and say, thank you very much. And that's it. No, no, you can't. And, and also the interesting thing, once you have that tool within a wildlife area, when you plan your grazing, um, you do the chart, and I love I love watching that because you you take into account um, the wildlife movements and and breeding seasons, and even I love it because we have like a little picture for community members or, or people that are literate. You'll have a little picture of a guinea fowl, and that's where they're nesting. That's their nesting period. So so you literally have to take the whole into consideration, and that's where I think the confusion comes in with holistic management and the difference between holistic plan grazing and grazing plans because you can't just take a grazing plan and make it work it's like trying to be a little bit pregnant you have to take the whole framework and use that as a tool and and then that is a grazing process that constantly has to flow with all the changing variables going on on the land all the time say for example We've done the grazing charts and um, suddenly I heard of 500 buffalo come through on an area where they were due to go. We have to adjust and change because now the buffalo have also contributed so we won't have to leave them so long. You know, so it's always just flowing with with the constantly changing um, variables on the land. I think it's a very special thing that um, that holistic management 
adapted from wild um, from a wild area. I mean, it's it's modeled on on wild processes, but it's it's modeled for domestic uh, for domestic use for domestic livestock. How do you see that interplay of like wild and and domestic? It's a very I think it's a special connection. I I just look at at the livestock side. You know, in communal lands, that's people's livelihoods. In wildlife areas, so so for me, when I go to Africa Centre, I love that herd of livestock. Um, I've grown to love it because I also grew up thinking that livestock caused damage. So I just love that herd because I'm like that's the tool that makes all this happen for our wildlife to thrive. So I think once we can start looking at it like um, in that respect, rather than livestock versus wildlife i mean all livestock were wild at some point and if we chuck them into an area with some lions they'd pretty soon behave <laughs> much more naturally <laughs> so it's us that's created the the sort of segregation between mm. domestic and wild animals because all domestic animals came from wild stock so so i guess where you are as well when you're so in contact with very wild areas is you see that blur sometimes those lines with like with local communities and the livestock Absolutely. And there's so much conflict between local communities and wildlife areas because mm. what will happen is the communities will start pushing their cattle anywhere where they can get grazing. So there's conflict constantly about grazing. And then a lion, say, will will eat one of the their cattle and then the community wants to be compensated or the community wow. will kill that lion. Wow. So there's there's no value to livestock to the wildlife within the communities, which is which is a huge, huge problem. And again, that's where the holistic context and decision-making comes in because it stops conflict and it makes everybody plan together. Mm. I, I just, I say that there's a really big, really, we're really big on EcoIQ about connection. I really believe that when the connections are made and something actually has meaning, like the ecology actually has meaning, which involves all the living areas, it becomes important rather than just trying to, the, to give the information. But the the thing that makes holistic magic special, I think, which I actually think is one of the, you could say like the fathers of regenerative movement today, regenerative farming movement, I think maybe the other one you could say is probably possibly key line, which is very different, but it's uh, also um, something very big. Also, really, I think that's what permaculture was, was modeled on, those two things, they're the two biggest things. But the biggest thing in holistic management, like you've mentioned, is is the context, the holistic context. Could you give us a bit of an insight? Obviously, we don't want to open up the whole thing because it'll probably take a while. But could yeah. you give us an insight? What is the significance of a holistic context? And then we'll dig into a little bit what it is. Um, okay, so, so genetically, we all make um, decisions to a very to a very narrow context we'll say i want food i need this i need that so we'll, so we'll base our decisions on problems or imminent needs wants desires and what holistic management does so so i'm trying to think of a way to simply do it without waffling on for too long um oh, no it's okay <laughs> so, <laughs> basically all tool using animals use exactly the same decision-making process. We are genetically programmed to think a certain way and make decisions a certain way. So say there's an otter that wants to open a clamshell and uh, the president of the United States wants to put a man on the moon. 
those two, the otter and the president, will use exactly the same decision-making process to do those things. And the only difference is the sophistication of the technology. Mm -hmm. So an otter will use a stone and the president will use, you know, obviously computers and rockets. And But the otter makes has an objective and he uses a stone to open the clam and he's learned that from past experience or what he's been taught. Same thing with the president. He'll have an objective to put a man on the moon. He needs a, a tool. So it's his fire and technology have enabled these sophisticated, um, these sophisticated machines. And he does it based on past experience, expert advice, and then they carry it through. Um, so what happened is those, that simple decision-making process still works for otters. It doesn't work for humans because what we did when our, when we developed fire, we changed our social structure within our environment. So all our decisions started becoming more and more reductionist because we were still making decisions for that basic world without these tools that, that these um, uh, things that got the technology that advanced and got more and more sophisticated. So if you look at the state of the world today, everything we make. So technology, phones, computers, airplanes, cars, bridges, schools, buildings, whatever we make is improving on steroids. It's just getting better and better and better. But every single thing we manage, natural systems and uh, man-made organizations, governments are collapsing at, at pretty much the same speed that our technology is advancing. And that's because everything we make is is complicated but it's not complex it can't fix itself if something goes wrong you know that's easy to manage and it's easy to fix whereas everything we manage soft system um natural systems and man-made organizations nothing in those can function in isolation they they cannot nothing in there can function in isolation they function in holes and patterns yet we manage them in isolation so in a, in a man-made organization, we'll separate the, the organization into departments. In a, in a um, natural system, we'll separate and manage for species. In a government, we separate and manage in, into um, ministries. And we make decisions very linear, linearly within all those things. So mm -hmm. in a natural system, we'll make decisions. We'll isolate elephants. We'll isolate locusts. We'll isolate weeds. We'll isolate wetlands will isolate trees and we try and manage for each of those and here's your analogy it's like trying to manage the hydrogen in water mm. we cannot separate these things and successfully manage them so what the holistic management context what a holistic context does is we take we still make those same decisions but instead of basing them on direct things, it means we are looking at the whole under management. And then we develop a holistic context, which is what we want for the future of that whole. And then we make sure that our, all our decisions are leading towards that context and not away from it. So that our decisions are continuously and simultaneously socially, culturally, economically, and environmentally sound. Um, so I hope that makes a little bit of sense, like simplifies it 
a little i've got a really good um like demonstration video that i did with the communities uh in wangi uh, rural areas the other day which which explains that very simply but i'm drawing it so so i always find explaining it is harder than showing someone how to do it mm, yeah i'm sure and there's a few things that come up to me when you said it it's a uh, it's short but it, it's very it's very good <clears throat> the first thing i that really struck me is the main thing that we're talking about is, is lack of connection because really in an ecology, if you're not aware of all the different moving parts and taking them into account of decisions, sounds like what you're saying mm-hmm. that uh, it's going to be dysfunctional, the decisions, if we're not yeah. connected to all those different parts. But the next thing I immediately thought is something actually I learned from Tony Robbins. I don't know if you've heard of that guy. Yeah, I have. <laughs> so something I learned from him, he said, you know, when you've got, a business or a lifestyle, whatever, there's a lot of moving parts. If you try and keep them all in your head all the time and take them in consideration, it's very difficult. So, you know, then he gets into all the techniques, take it out of your head, put it onto paper, start to organize it. And it really struck me that's kind of what holistic context sounds a bit like. You, you want to take in all these elements into consideration. And to do that, it's going to be very tricky in the when the when it comes down to when the rubber meets the road and you've got to make a decision unless you've got it mapped out you know unless you've got it printed out and it's clear for you is that is that sound accurate i'll tell you that holistic management and developing a context is ridiculously simple oh that's good there's nothing complicated you don't have to think all all the all these parts it automatically falls into place and the right decisions for for that complexity Mm. will automatically just rise to the top as soon as we change that context Mm. so what is happening now is there's thousands of different management frameworks but where the rubber hits the road as you say the decision so so it starts off wide like looking at the whole picture and where the (laughs) decision so we often like then we'll call in experts because we don't know what to see. And the expert will come in and straight away, boom, you've reduced it straight back down at the decision. So the decision is going to be based on expert advice about a specific thing rather than keeping it wide in your context. So the difference then in the holistic management framework is you develop your context. You become your own expert, basically. So you develop your context then when it comes time to call in expert advice, the expert will come in and he may be an expert on anything, on elephants or on this or on that, and he'll say, well, this is my advice, this is what you should do, and you say, thank you. And when the expert leaves, you then check that that decision is in line with your context, and then you can use the seven filtering context checks to ensure that that decision is socially, culturally environmentally and economically sound for you because the expert has no idea of what complexity you're dealing with. It doesn't have the context. So you get the advice of a practice or an action, but you check it yourself within your context and your, and your complexity because it's like a fingerprint. Nobody on the planet is ever dealing with the same complexity. So I can't tell you what to do. I can only suggest a practice and say to you, check if that would work for you at any given time because it also might not work consistently. You might have to change it. Okay, so I think, I think we have to give us a bit of meat on the, on the context now. Let us give us a little bit of a... Okay, so what, what I'll do is I will... So how we get people to develop a context, what I'll do is say how we get them to develop it and then I'll read a generic one. Would that be okay? That's great. 
Okay. So when, say, I'm in a communal area and I'm sitting with uh, a chief or a villager and I say, and I'm explaining how to develop context. So you first say, so everybody in an area or in a business has to be involved in developing the context. So you, you, sit, so you sit everyone down and you discuss and you say, I want you to go back and think about very, very deeply how you want your life to be. All the players, so, you're saying. Get, organize all the players. All, all the people that will be involved, either, either managing or being affected by the decision. Mm-hmm. So managing or affected by management. So you get them and you say, how do you want your life to be? And you really go and think deeply, like what what is very important to you and you can't describe any action. You can only describe a, like a, a, what you see in your future and not just for now, for, for, a, for your generations to come. And then you ask them to say what behaviors would bring that about. And this is in a community. If you're doing it as an individual, it's much simpler um, because that whole is just your family or your little life, but I'll do it with it with a community. So what behaviors will bring that about? And it will be being cheerful, being honest, being friendly, working together. Um, And then you just describe to them, you say, well, you can't have any of these things, which they'll want clean water, good crops, good vegetation, you know, all all of the things that that, they don't want disaster um and then you you explain that we no none of us can survive without green plants growing on regenerating soil so you have to describe what you want your life supporting environment to be for hundreds of generations to come because you can't have any of the things you want without that so then i'll just do a, a holistic a generic holistic context that i use as an example i'll just read it out um We want stable families living peaceful lives in prosperity and physical security while free to pursue our own spiritual or religious beliefs. We want adequate nutritious food and clean water. We want good education, health and balanced lives with time for family, friends, community and leisure for cultural and other pursuits, all to be ensured for many generations to come based on a foundation of ethical and humane behavior to all life regenerating soils and biologically diverse communities on earth's land and in her rivers, lakes, and oceans. So I think that's a, that's a context that we use. I mean, it's very general, isn't it, Sarah? Absolutely. Fundamentally all humans want that, you know, nobody wants violence and death and destruction and, you know, cholera-filled rivers and and flooding and droughts and poverty. So people develop their own context, and they might have they might have other things that they will add that 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 will come up mm-hmm. within their context. So you, you, there is absolutely no conflict, and there's no compromise. So when developing your context, you have to talk about it until everybody agrees with it. You mean there can't be any conflict between the people that are involved in the context? No, can't. When, with the context, everyone has to agree on it. And it, it's not difficult because what it does is it takes you beyond uh, your personal stuff and it, and it takes you into a, into a much bigger picture. So, and then you can still, re, you're still respecting everybody's personal things because they've said that. They've said we're free to pursue our own spiritual and religious beliefs within our communities and, and whatever, but you're just much more, it makes you much more aware 
of what and what we do with this at the same time in communities in rural communities is we do a ground cover demo i'm not sure if you've seen that uh, no, I um, didn't. You, you, you didn't put it on your on your YouTube. Was it YouTube? I think. Yeah, not yet. So basically, I'm, I'm pointing it's, you out. <laughs> uh, okay, I'll, I'll put it up. It's uh, you. You just do three patches, three squares of bare ground. Yeah. And on the first one, you leave bare. The second one, you churn up like it's had hooves over it. And the third one, you do hooves and vegetation. So it's like it's been mulched and trampled by by wildlife. Except it doesn't have the roots, which would obviously make a huge difference. Yeah. And then you pour water like it's rained onto each one. And the first one is just very obvious to run off and taking the soil with it. The second one has a little bit of, of water retention in the indentations. Yeah. And the third one, none of the water runs off. It all sinks down. It's and like a following day, like an advanced version of the road hour one, you know, where they have the, um, the cuts, oh, yeah, the, the yeah. cuts different ones actually with something growing once bare exactly. and one's just got mulch seeing whether the, the water is clear or whatever. Yeah, so it's, exactly, it's yeah. a very basic thing. And then, so, so then what we say is once you have your context and you start to make your normal decisions, I need food, uh, my livestock need food or whatever, you say, okay, well, will this fit in with my context and will it lead to bare ground or will it lead to covered ground? I just want to stop you there, Sarah, because this is a very significant thing. It was very interesting for me that there is a big focus on on the soil and that that creates conflict when it's bare. When you go to communities or when it's a probably less a family, unless they're very rural and they've got their own homestead, but I mean, in communities at least, when you're given this demonstration, do, do you see even people that have been dealing for a lot of years or maybe even generations with livestock and that, does it do something, does it change in that demonstration? Does it make a shift? It, it definitely does. Um, I'd say one of the big problems in communities um, is they've become very apathetic because they've had, they're just on perpetual handouts from NGOs. So what's happened is it's made them very disjointed um, and sort of almost, so there's a lot of conflict. Um, and of course the more bare ground there is, there's more conflict. So now that's, this is exactly what I'm talking about. So a villager will say, okay, one of my decisions is my livestock need food. And he'll think about his livestock or her livestock and go out and find grazing and will fight with other people about grazing. So what this does now and what we're finding in the community is because the situation is so bad this year they've lost many 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 livestock this year because of the drought is now we're explaining to them if you're operating within this context you you won't with that decision you'll say oh no i can't that's leading to bare ground so now we have to work together and oh here's a good tool which is holistic plant grazing so we've now got huge mobilization in some of these communities which is really exciting because it's brand new and they're about to develop context because there's enough sort of critical mass putting their livestock together and starting that collective decision making and um it will really change the face of Africa if we can really get this going now this year. Mm. So you're saying that that context development stage, that's the thing that really makes the the difference, makes a shift in the communities. Yeah, so Great. what's happened, only since December have we had a real big shift in, in, in the one area, in the one chieftainship 
Uh, and it's just really been one really passionate um, villager who's been trying to mobilize his community since 2012, but has been met with apathy. What happened? And I, it was just because, like I say, they get seed, they get handouts, they get. I mean, what happened that changed it? Where did he start oh, so getting This drought has been so bad; they've lost their livestock. They've, they've lost so so. And I think, you know, whatever they're getting from from NGOs, they've realized that it's it's not working. So I think it's on a big scale. So within six weeks, I sat with this guy at his at his village in October this year, and he just said, "I, I just don't know what to do. How are we going to get this going? Is it ever going to happen?" Hmm. And six weeks later, I went, and they had almost three hundred cattle in a herd together. Mm. Um, that's new. Now, that's a new thing for them. That's completely new. And. Mm. Since then, it's just started to really take off to the point where it's like, whoa, hang on. Yeah, because now they need a context. So oh, they, they've been doing that up until without a context, just the plant grazing. Well, they've just learned about the tool of the grazing mm. to regenerate their land. But now what's happened, which is so exciting, is there's enough of a critical mass of the villagers working together that the chief now is is really taking action and he has convening power. Mm-hmm. So I went in and showed them that context demo that I that I think you watched the other day that I didn't put the ground cover demo in with. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And nice. I've just been constantly in touch and I've said, how's it going since you've been showing the context demo? And he said, it's just taking off. So it, that's really exciting um, and never before been, been done. I mean, we've got a lot of farmers and things like that that are using holistic decision-making, but we've never had it start to happen on, on this sort of scale. I understand. I, I think uh, the main thing that it really brought up for me is that it seems today one of the biggest issues is chronic disempowerment. And much of it, I think, oh. is self-inflicted. Absolutely. It's like sometimes we get so stuck in victimhood that we'll fight uh, not to go through the purge that results uh, from becoming a hundred percent responsible. It's like when you no, take, absolutely. when you take extreme ownership of our decisions and the actions and our lives. So much of the following of fads today it's grounded really strongly in the belief that we need to um, we need help from government to make any difference. And I think it's not just for rural communities. I think it's all around the world. It's a very common thing, I think. Yeah, without question. I mean, I've watched this this community just start to just get really excited because it negates a need for any handouts. And it mm. and so if we just give them the, the tool of the framework and, and a couple of practices that they can apply... Um, because now remember, we can't just have the holistic plan grazing without the rest of the decision making being in context. So, so it's all their decisions. It's clearing crop fields. It's cutting down trees for firewood. It's you know all of these things are, where are mixed the, together. Where today. do the wild areas come into that? Into the context. So, so the, those are they're they're amongst the wildlife. They have huge conflict with the wildlife, but there's of course way less wildlife than there was because of the poaching, yeah. because there's just no value and there's and there's starvation. So again, it all everything comes down to bare ground, because when you have bare ground, you have poverty, you have desperation, you have poaching, you have conflict, you have no water. So it, so everything just starts to speed up 
and get worse and worse and worse. You have mass emigration into cities because there's no food and da 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 da. So um, this community that has mobilized now, by the end of this year, will see a huge difference in their land if they stick to it. And I think that will just just be like a domino effect across the board with communities in Africa. I hope. And when does that when does that higher uh, level value kick in for them that the the wildlife around me is also very critical to my success. Um, again, it's a very difficult topic and it's very uh, contentious because of the sort of anti-hunting, blah, blah, blah. So again, those are practices <clears throat> that need to be looked at within context um, because I, while, while I don't agree with, with trophy hunting itself, I do believe that man is an essential part of an ecosystem and hunting is, is an essential part of, of keeping animals moving naturally. We're, we're just as much a predator as anything else. And this is, again, looking at the whole. You can't just separate humans from ecosystems. So, um, yeah, it's a very difficult one to talk about because of the emotive issue about it. Um, yeah. But when, when there is ethical hunting allowed within those sort of areas there will be a huge value to the to the wildlife as well as their livestock right now there's zero value to the to the wildlife at all so if a lion kills a kills a cow we'll be like we'll just get rid of that lion because we don't need it what's what's the value to us our livestock are valuable so also with the holistic plan grazing process the cattle are mobilized together and they're kept in predator friendly crawls so it does reduce the conflict a lot so they're not all scattered all over the place being picked off by lions or mm -hmm. but then but then you have crop raiding animals you have elephants you have baboons you have all these things and it's a very very real issue for these community members like they're terrified a lot of the time and the less um, vegetation and the more bare ground the more that conflict is going to happen because the animals are starving and the people and the people are growing crops and so it just becomes a really contentious and vicious circle. Again, just conflict because of bare ground. As soon as there's covered ground and grazing for the animals, they're not going to want to encroach on the human habitat, etc. So you can see it just is a vicious circle that we need to um, address. Yeah. One of the really significant things you mentioned there is that you mentioned that the humans are a central part of the ecosystem. And I, I think that's something that's really along with the victimhood thing of not taking, it's like a victim mentality, not taking, not taking want to take responsibility for my own actions and decisions. Also this thing that, um, that humans are something else. It kind of goes with the conservation idea that the humans are something else and we've got our thing and our technology and everything. And then there's the wild the nature and this yeah. like thing of be being something together that we're also, something natural i think it's a very it's a very important point but also with eco iq i would like to take it a little bit further and see what your opinion on it is that a lot of the time especially with regenerative um agricultural systems like this one um i find that i've found many times we can by doing it we can accelerate processes that would by themselves take a long time so there is like this uh when human human beings interact with the with the environment in a natural way, in a harmonious way, you can accelerate processes that it would anyway take a long time. So it's it's like 
we're part of nature, but we had this ability to, to, to do better for nature than we would if we were just one in the picture. So it's, a, it's the idea of like, you know, in America, the, there's a big movement. Okay, let's just lock all the nature away and don't touch it. But it seems mm-hmm. like if we, if we actually engage in nature as human beings, like from our higher states, really wanting to be connected, we can actually make a difference that's more positive if we weren't, if we weren't there. Oh, with absolutely without question, we have to put ourselves back in our decision making within ecosystems. A perfect example of that is my dad used in his TED talk is when we set aside areas for the national parks in Zimbabwe in the 1960s, they took out all the the native rural villages that were in those areas and um, they fenced them off and whatever. And, and this uh, terrible desertification started happening. And they straight away blamed elephants. And as you know from the TED Talk, they, they, over the next few years, my dad was involved in the research with the government and they culled over 40,000 elephants. And the desertification got worse. And it wasn't because of the elephants. It was because they'd taken the humans, the hunting humans, keeping those animals moving naturally. They'd taken those humans out of that ecosystem and the ecos- the apex predator was taken out and the ecosystem began collapsing. But humans, short-sighted, reductionist thinking, blamed the elephants. And like my dad said, he, he proved what he believed because that he just hadn't seen the bigger picture. And I think that's such an important lesson in terms, because we still, I mean, we, we, we don't cull as much anymore. People still advocate for culling. Or now we've just changed the practice. We just move the elephants translocation, which is hugely expensive and a just a complete waste of time because you're not addressing the cause of, of everything in the, in the first place, which is reductionist decisions and trying to isolate a species in an ecosystem. And in that case, it was isolating and removing the humans. Just before we let it go, I'm just really curious, did, you, did your father tell you that before in his story, like, you know, when, he, when, he, when that happened with the elephants? Oh, it- yeah, yeah, many, many times. It's a, he still cries about it when he thinks about it now, but it's like I say, if that hadn't happened, I mean, he was part of a whole government decision mm-hmm. and all those people that are still involved in conservation in Zimbabwe are still, well, not all, some of them have died because they're old, but... Um, they still advocate culling and not one of them would admit a mistake. My dad was the only one that stood up and said that that was a mistake. And, but if that hadn't happened, yeah, we learned from our mistakes. If that hadn't happened, he became absolutely determined to find the answer because that of that horrific, horrific mistake. So, mm. so, and still people aren't listening. Mm. I, we had a guest once before. It was a little bit off our ecological direction, but it was very in line. It works with shadow work. It's called shadow work. And he finds um, shadows that we have now. It's called the shadows. It's um, like um, limiting beliefs, kind of, you could say. It's actually a bit deeper than that. But, um, and, he, and, he, and what, I, what, we dis- what I discovered in doing one of his courses was that those deepest shadows that we have are connected to our strongest power. So I can see very clearly with your with your father there. It's such a deep uh, mistake. I mean, he didn't make it by himself, obviously, but such a deep mistake to be involved in. You know, it, it's very logical why the opposite would be so uh, connected. 
because it's a very it's it's an incredible system to to develop and and be you know to create yeah to without with. question and especially as he elephants are just his absolute favorite thing in the wow. world we had an orphaned elephant um for many many years and and that was like he liked that more than most people <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah it's just it's just that was a very tragic thing but but again he wouldn't have discovered it and then the other thing we were talking about is disconnection or um our separating ourselves what people in in city so reductionist management and thinking is universal so people who live in cities their decisions every day affect what's going on out here out there in nature so that even though they they are disconnected from it their decisions are affecting it mm. so and, and that's where where it becomes it becomes very difficult the, the other thing with with the holistic context is when you're developing context and you're discovering the whole under management you have to have people involved in the context that have veto power over those decisions because they have to respect the context that's being developed mm. um so in other words people in the west can't tell people in africa what decisions to make because they have no idea of the context or the complexity that's being managed mm. so they, while they can give advice the people that are actually managing whatever's being managed have to be able to say no this is the decision that's right because we've checked it's in line with our context and it's it's sound across the board and won't have knock on consequences mm. so for example if an ngo comes into a, a rural area and says right we're going to put money in and build you dams that's a very reductionist practice decision so automatically the chief could say okay well let's check it's in line with our context okay no it's not let's think of another practice you can be involved in or or whatever so so basically what what has happened globally is we have millions well, i don't know if they're millions thousands and thousands of really good practices mm. we have no till organic regenerative permaculture yeah. anything anything you can think of we have many 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 good practices what we have never had is a decision making framework to ensure that 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 practice is appropriate for our unique situation So what's always happened in in our history is someone's done something and they, and then say the neighboring farmer said oh that's a good idea let me do that and somebody 100k's away said let me do that but not check that it's in line with context at any given time so so what this framework does is just ensure that we are making the right we're choosing the right practice at the right time for the right reasons for ourselves and and i hope that makes sense so so it can be an individual in a city using this this framework and developing a holistic context for their life it can be a pastoralist here in africa it can be a government developing a policy so it just it just is smaller holes within bigger holes within bigger holes until you're developing a context for a whole country tell me though sorry in the in a context do you think always uh, ecology should be part of most people's context I mean maybe a bit it's, difficult in Tokyo but oh no it's vital because even what they go and buy in the supermarket where does it come from mm-hmm. 
could have come from New Zealand, could have come yeah. from America, could have come. So, so the most important part of the context is what you want the health of your life supporting environment to be. It doesn't matter where it is. Mm-hmm. Because uh, look, at, look at Europe. Because of Africa desertifying, it's changing the face of Europe because of the mass emigration into Europe. Yeah. To reverse that, we have to reverse desertification in Africa. And, you know, all these climate conferences and da da da, da everybody's talking about symptoms. Um, again, fossil fuels, our management of all of these things are just symptoms. So as soon as people are developing these kind of holistic contexts, they'll automatically be looking for alternatives. So, for example, in a community, if someone says, and I'll give an example of it, because somebody will say, oh, I need wood for cooking, and they'll go and chop down a, a tree. So now they'll still make that same decision, say, I need wood for cooking, but hang on, that's leading to bare ground and destroying my environment. So I have to ha- find a different practice. Hmm. So then they can look at something like a rocket stove, which we, we've developed, which just uses twigs. And, and so that's, that's what I'm saying is it just leads people to better decisions. So, for example, just an individual in Tokyo goes into the supermarket and wants to buy some meat or some vegetables. Okay, where does it come from? Is it factory farmed? Is it so? So these are your context checks. Is it socially, culturally, environmentally, and economically sound? It might be economically sound for you, but if it's factory farmed, it's definitely not environmentally sound, and it's definitely not culturally or socially sound. So if it if you cross no on any of those context checks, then you don't use that decision. So you would source. You'd automatically source better meat. Same with vegetables. Where are they grown? Pesticides sprayed. Is it monoculture? Is it intercropping? Is it regenerative? Is it not? So that's all we're talking about is a different context to ensure you're always thinking about the best action at that time. Yeah. yeah I remember Darren Doherty saying that w- when he found holistic management after years of dealing with design and plant, land planning, he was like, "Where? why did I put this book down a few years ago? <laughs> I guess it comes to people at the right time. Maybe it's, I've, I, it's, it's amazing. Someone explained it very well to me the other day. Cause he's, I was getting frustrated with people not understanding it hmm. because it's so simple, but he just said, your he said, I think your brain is wired differently and it's wired like your father's. And he said, I've never seen anything. So genetic is genetic is it's very, um, you just think differently. And I think, I think the key to that is that, I, I'm able to stay zoomed out towards a bigger, towards a bigger picture. And I've always had that ability since I was a, a child, like to look at something bigger and what humans do from the day we're born is we, we zoom in and, and, and as we're educated, we learn more and more about less and less we, and, and we become more and more sort of isolated from the world because we've got all these stresses and it's like, I need to make this decision and I can't think about. So, and they're so used to getting bogged down in arguments about practices or who's got the best practice. Whereas this just zooms you out and says, okay, let's see if this practice is appropriate um, in a given situation rather than just saying, oh, you've got to do this or you've got to do permaculture or you've got to do this. Okay, well, let's see. You know, so so it's just staying zoomed out and not getting bogged down in discussing a practice, basically, before you have a context. I think it's really significant. It seems to me, I'm happy, I really want your opinion. It seems to me that the 
the empowerment of people through taking control of their own decisions is like a big factor. Like for instance, with the rocket stoves, if a person is really becomes empowered, if they're not empowered and they need to heat their phone, heat their, heat their house. So they're, when they're not empowered, they're not, they're not motivated to go and look for different systems. They don't believe anything else can work. But when someone's empowered, okay, I've got control of my decision. No one else is going to do it. It's only me, our community, our family. So they're much more open-minded and much more likely to push to find other solutions because there's a many yeah, solutions out there for everything. That's what I always say, that um, this, this, this framework empowers you to be able to make better decisions. Nobody else can tell you what to do and nobody else can force you to do something. Once you're using this decision, you, you are your own expert. You guide your life entirely to yourself. So it's almost a little bit, it sounds selfish in a way, but it's not. It's, 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 just, it's just stopping conflict between people. So people will sit and argue. I mean, I'll sit and listen to people argue and argue on Facebook and get bogged down in these details about Roundup being sprayed, about how much carbon is in the soil, about fossil fuels, about flying, about this and that. And those are all symptoms of our decision-making. We can change it tomorrow if we change this context because we will just make better decisions globally. And so, and my, I have to respect what someone else's decision is. So, um, but at the same time, those decisions have to be tied to this, the life supporting environment. So we can't, that's the most important part of the context is it's, is it's, it cannot happen without regenerating soils. Mm -hmm. So regenerative agriculture is, is not going to be regenerative in the long term without the holistic decision-making and context because people will use the wrong practices at the wrong time for the wrong reasons, which is why over 20 civilizations failed in the past, not because they didn't have good practices, because it was all organic, it was grass-fed, they were herding animals into plants. Um, it was because their decision-making and their, and their context was too narrow for the complexity and, and change in social behavior that we created for ourselves with a technology-driven world. Mm. Mm. I think it's uh, it's too easy to to not realize the significance of it, but it sounds it sounds like sounds like really holistic context gives you a way to embrace complexity a little bit because there's a lot of nature. I, I once had a guest tell me you might disagree. Juan Juan Fran Lopez is very big on biofertilizer. He actually was in Africa. I'm not sure. He actually knows your father uh, quite well. His father's going to okay. have him working on chromatography and biofertilizers okay. on his on his property there. Okay. And he told me that uh, one mentor he had taught him, uh, Juan, Juan Fran, nature is very complex, but humans make it complicated. <laughs> it's, so, it's so right. And that's what I was just going to say is so many people, when I'm trying to explain this, because it's complex, they look for a complicated solution. <laughs> and it's and the easiest people I can teach this to, they, 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 I, with adults, it's like I'm banging my head against a brick wall a lot of the time. When I teach it to children, it's instant. And when I teach it to illiterate people in a communal area, it's instant because they don't have to unlearn and they're not, their brain's not looking for something, for something difficult. So, yes, nature is complex and extremely complex and chaotic but with a different context and taking the whole into consideration with every decision we make 
we are automatically, and then if we're in doubt about a decision within the holistic management framework, there are context checks to make sure it's socially, environmentally, culturally, and economically sound. So we're addressing complexity easily, whereas everybody wants a sort of a complicated solution because nature is so complex. So, so it's a, a lot of the time, I think when the penny drops, I watch it drop with people and they sort of go, oh, is it that simple? And that happens when I practically do it with people rather than... So what I'm setting up in Zimbabwe at the moment it, with someone we're having a meeting this afternoon is we're going to, because I, I bang my head against the brick wall trying to explain it to adults so often, is we're going to do some context-developing uh, workshops. So people just come in... And we do a generic one, like show them how decisions are made much more simply without uh, having to tell them why we need to change the context. Just say, okay, this is how we make decisions now. Here's a context. You develop it over the next uh, hour and then we'll do it. Just a generic and very simple one that's not, not as profound, but um, just to show how simple it is. Yeah. And how your decisions will change instantly. Mm. So, 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 Sarah, where can people get into this more, into the holistic context specifically? Learning well, other books. Yeah, look, it's it's in my dad's in my dad's book. The the um, what's it called? <laughs> <laughs> There's a couple. The holistic guy and handbook, holistic management handbook. No, not the handbook. So. I'm trying to, what I'm trying to get people away from is thinking that holistic management is something to do with livestock and grazing systems because it's a universal framework that any, any human can use. So, um, that's what I'm trying to steer away from a little bit more. And, and then land managers have the, the, the option of the tool of holistic land grazing, um, because they're dealing with full complexity. Um, so you know, I, I think slowly but surely I'm going to be developing a lot more um, just demonstrations of how to develop your own context. Um, so any advice from any listeners or viewers on, on uh, you know, putting together short sort of animated video clips maybe, like you know, because that one that I did was the first time I've done it and it's really been successful, but it would be nice to sort of condense it and make it a bit more fun. And uh, my son just recorded that over my shoulder basically while I was sitting in camp. So, yeah. Um, yeah. I think the physical demonstrations are very strong, you know, like the, like the um, basic style of Rhode Island, Rhode Island Institute one that you had pouring the water. I think that in storytelling is very, very powerful. I think it's. So I, think, I think of this holistic context demo that I'm working on uh, that, that obviously will evolve as I show more people and get their input. And I'm going to go and show my students because they always simplify things a lot as well. Um, is to do the ground cover demo followed by that. Maybe I could even do like online um, demos for people. You know, we could do like a webinar or something where, where if people want to know, they can contact me or individuals even if they say, how do I develop context? They can just Skype me or, or Zoom me or whatever and say because it's just it's just knowledge that we have to get out there and it's so simple once it's physically done. It's like riding a bike. If I, if I describe to you how how to ride a bike and you'd never seen one, you'd be very confused. But if I gave you a bike and said, this is how you ride it, it's a very different picture. So that's that's basically what. Okay. What so, so we need to stay tuned to, to what you're going to do. Definitely. And if, <laughs> if people want to um, get into the holistic context deeper for now that if, if somebody buys that book 
all the parts are in there to explain them every everything about it, right? Yeah, yeah. There's a there's a chapter on on developing context, but mm-hmm. um, like I say, I I can definitely help, and I'm more than willing to help anyone that wants to learn a little bit more about how to do that. Yeah, yeah. We'll definitely uh, we'll definitely talk after, and we'll give links, and we'll hopefully set up something. Yeah, Sarah. Great. Sarah, one of the most striking things that I took away from Joel Salatin, he was one of our guests. I'm sure, you know him. Yeah. Very a big fan of your of your father's work. Yeah, and uh, he, he one of the biggest things I took away from him is his deep, deep love and respect for his animals, which runs a bit contrary to a lot of people who think. Afterwards, actually, I talked with him. I found it almost offensive when I'd read some comments say, you know, Joel is cruel or barbaric, or he doesn't care about animals, or you know, he had he told me he had a practice of lying down in the grass of an evening every so often and just being with the cows. You know, it's, it's somebody that really has a deep connection to his animals. He really loves them. I think most genuine farmers have a deep connection to their animals. I mean, like I say, I that uh, all wildlife, all animals. I think a lot of people who live in cities and haven't grown up, like uh, especially like we have in Africa, like with the with v- being very connected to nature. And nature is incredibly cruel a lot of the time, like really, really, really barbarically cruel all around you. And, and I think in Africa, especially like my kids are growing up, you're very practical. You're very, um, I mean, my, my kids couldn't be more passionate about animals and I've grown up being extremely passionate about animals. And I used to cry if my mum even stood on a snail in the garden, (laughs) but I'm also practical, you know, like, okay, well, this is how it is. And I think we've become so disconnected. Um, just, we become over emotional and that, and that sounds, uh, it's, it's not, I mean, I couldn't be more emotional about animals. I love them dearly, but also remember when you're, when you're dealing with in like, especially in Africa, when you're dealing with livestock and you're dealing with wildlife, you're dealing with predation, you're dealing with death, you're dealing with disease, you're dealing with, very harsh conditions and a lot of the time it is what people would would think of as cruel but you know like say we have a a cow we had a cow the other day that unfortunately tripped on a a rock and broke her leg you know that sort of thing it's 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 nature it happens and um I, i just think for me it's all about staying in balance and staying practical and there's no question whatsoever that genuine farmers and any of us doing this work are the, I mean, I've dedicated my entire life to saving animals. Um, so I do get very sort of defensive and angry when people who don't understand the, the again, the big picture, how, how can you love an animal and eat it? Um, <laughs> well, well, that's a, that's, that's nature, you know. I think I think Joel Salatin had an amazing way he put it. He said that life is so sacred; it requires a sacrifice to thrive. Oh, absolutely! And and if you see how how nature is, I mean, if if for me, I, I don't touch meat that's come from factory farms or gone through an abattoir. I source my meat responsibly and I have no, I always, I always say that if we eat holistically managed cows and pigs, for me, it's guilt-free food, Mm. but I feel no differently from 
from my, my animal products to I do from my vegetable products because, uh, you know, look at all the insects that get sprayed and killed. They're mm. killing all the microorganisms in the soil. I won't differentiate between a grasshopper and, a, and an elephant. They're still, for me, a living, so, feeling. Tell me, Sarah, do you, do you feel ever, the, I mean, you, I don't think you run your own livestock, but do you ever feel that there is like, I mean, Joe Salton obviously felt there was like a sacredness about uh, managing those animals. Um, you know, because it's with it's interaction and they're, like you said, compared to if, if they are now wild, their life is, you know, takes on a bit more higher value than it would do if they were in the wild and have a horrific, you know, when they get killed, predated upon, it's not a, it's not nice. <laughs> it involves exactly. culture. It's oh, uh, yeah, definitely, like I said, with the management herd at Africa Center, I've grown to love that herd of cattle so much because for me, they're doing such an amazing job. They're lending a hoof to the wildlife. They're helping humans. They're helping, you know, insects and birds and everything. So I think, I, you know, I feel, and the same probably as Joel, I love, my favorite thing is going out in the evening when all those cattle are coming into their, their predator-friendly crawl and it's so peaceful and quiet and the herders are counting them coming in, making sure they're not left behind and they all come in for the evening and the the young uh, sheep and goats and and cows that and calves that can't go out for the whole day because they they can't walk that far they all run to meet their mums and it's just the most amazing yeah. feeling and and yeah I, I Joel also pointed out that the death was also sacred so the death absolutely. of that animal was also a sacred thing absolutely and you thank that animal and it's quick and humane and it hasn't it's had a wonderful life and. Yeah, so um, I think it's like I say to my kids because I take them. I've taken them to see an animal be be slaughtered, and and they, of course they will cry. They don't like it. I don't like it either. Yeah, but then I also say, well, we don't like watching the lions. I mean, some some um, wild dogs chased a, a bushbuck, a, a young female bushbuck, into the camp, and she was so exhausted she fell on the floor amongst us, and. Um, and the wild dogs waiting all around. I mean, that that oh. what happens is as wild dogs will chase something down until it's so exhausted it can't run anymore. I mean, if that's not a traumatic end, <laughs> yeah. I'm not sure what is. So, so it's just being it's just being practical. And for me, it's being it's staying in balance, a hundred percent in balance, and not being. Uh, you know, I think. A really, I, I met an amazing man at, a, at the Oppenheimer Wildlife Conference uh, last year in, in South Africa, and he was a man that was talking about bees. And I think he was one of the only speakers that didn't have a PhD. He was just really passionate. So his speech for me was so incredible because it came from the heart. not And it wasn't like lots and lots of figures and numbers and stats. He really genuinely cared. And, and someone asked him a question. And he said, a bee knows how to be a bee. You know, you don't have to <laughs> manipulate it or you just have to give it the best, the most natural options for it. So as I'm talking about this, about uh, livestock and wildlife and, and emotional connections, is a lion knows how to be a lion. It eats when it's hungry. It'll walk past a herd of impala when it's not hungry. And I think we've lost that. We need to know how to be us. We need to well, know to eat when we're hungry, to hunt when we're hungry, uh, and not have this 
enormous greed and cruelty. We need to, to be natural within our environments again. So, so I completely hate factory farming. I completely hate the greed that we have for things like we'll kill things for nothing, you know? So, so uh, for me, like I say to my kids when we're fishing or we're doing stuff and I say, are you hungry? You don't need to keep that. Let's throw it back. You know? So those sort of things like, um, yeah. So that's, that's all for me is, is being practical and, and going back into balance with knowing who to be, what to be within our ecosystem. So like a bee needs knows how to be a bee. We've forgotten how to be humans. Mm. Mm. Very interesting. Um, how important is it for you to remain open to new ways of doing things and new knowledge, new approaches? So. Oh, I'm I'm always open and learning about all sorts of uh, of new um, practices and things that that go on. So it's really exciting, and um, especially sort of so again we come down to context. Is as soon as there's a new practice, you can check that you can use it or not um, within a holistic context. So so for me, I think exciting things when people learn how to develop. A holistic context is we'll see very exciting new innovations and changes mm-hmm. in how we how we manage fossil fuels and things like that. So so those sort of things I look out for 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 because um, I'm not very technology savvy. <laughs> um, but but yeah, for me, when we develop context, it's not only about about the direct uh, stuff that happens to the land. It's all the other stuff that we're doing on the planet that's that's causing damage so yeah it's it's i'm always open to new exciting things that mm. i think are going to come from the next generation so sorry how relevant do you think it is do we need to have less animals on the land in the world <laughs> <laughs> is that a big problem it's vital that we have more otherwise we are doomed <laughs> okay, we need more so we need to get them out of the shed and onto the onto the soil well um, I don't know uh, how much longer we have. If I, no, if I we're can... gonna we're gonna we're gonna wrap it up now, so Okay, I just wanted to say about um, you know all, we need so many more animals on the land in in arid areas. Um, so in in nature, nature designed this absolutely perfect machine to mulch soil. So all gardeners will understand what mulching is, and now nature designed herding animals to mulch on a landscape scale and that's what we have to get back to so whether it's livestock or whether it's live wildlife we have to have those hooves on the ground and unfortunately we don't have enough wildlife to do the job anymore because we've wiped them out since we developed fire and we started burning grasslands and um so we have to go back to what nature designed for those areas of the planet and that's when the, after a rainy season, you have long grass. Those animals are designed to come in, trample up the, the soil with their hooves and aerate it, graze the grass, take off the, the tops. What they don't eat, they flatten across the top of the soil, forming this and dung and urinate. And the, and the important thing to know during the dry seasons is, so in humid areas, plants can biologically break down with microorganisms all year round because of the moisture in the air. But in these arid areas like Zimbabwe and brittle environments, 
the, the microorganisms in the soil have to pass through a ruminant's gut to get the moisture they need to be able to biologically break down plant material during the dry season. So basically these huge herds come through, they mulch the soil, perfect, perfect, thick cushion to catch the rain that falls. And then that rain can sink through into the roots and filter through into our underground waterways. So we, we stop. We have effective water cycles again if, mm -hmm. if we do that. Right now we have non-effective rainfall, which is causing droughts, flooding, all the, all the global issues we are looking at today. So the importance of herding and grazing ruminants. So in Australia, they had kangaroos and emus and things like that. And, uh, you know, in other areas of the world, we had camels or whatever we've got. We need to get back to that, that mulching of the soil every dry season of the, of the plant material. And so what happens if the plant material remains upright, sunlight can't reach the growth points of the plants. So that trampling is vital to get the grass down so that the, so that the growth points are exposed to sunlight. So if the sunlight can't reach the, the growth points, the grass will turn to chemical oxidation and it will die, which is why rest in arid areas causes desertification. Mm -hmm. Rest in humid areas, it doesn't matter. Rest in arid areas will cause desertification. So what happened when we wiped out the wild herds is we started to burn those grasslands to clear them after the after the rainy season, after the dry season. We started to burn them because they weren't they weren't down. And burning is just rapid chemical oxidation. So we have to teach people that grasslands and those areas and I'll mention forests just quickly. Um, they have to decay biologically. They can't be chemically oxidized. It's, it's chemical breakdown is no good. Fire leaves the soil bare and exposed and leads to fire-dependent plants and vegetation, which is not nutritious for animals. So the, it continues. But in Africa, especially because the whole world is talking about planting trees, but in Africa, in all our forest areas, we now have desert forests. We have no grass under those trees. And I'm watching the, a lot of the teak forests that I drive through in Vic Falls. I'm watching those big old trees just dying and no seeds are germinating because they're not having the animal movement they need underneath the trees. So I say people can't see the grass for the trees. We need that grass and we need that animal impact under the trees, the exact same story. So, yeah. <laughs> That's that's we need lots 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 more animals, wild and domestic, and as many as we can. But if they're managed incorrectly, they will cause desertification. If they're managed using a holistic planned grazing process, because you can't just put a grazing process in, you have to be the whole under management. Because again, we can't leave people and finances out of the equation. Um, then we'll regenerate the world. Mm. It's starting to sound like a real ecology. Plants, animals, and people. That's an ecology. It can only, and, and that holistic management, um, your context ensures you're always, always dealing with the whole under management. You don't ever separate into managing for people, finances. And it just, it just basically what I say is the holistic management framework ties whatever you're managing together and, um, and it sort of just brings everything together. It's like the missing ingredients in all these practices and, and, and management things that we have. I think what it seems like even more interesting is it's not only an ecology, plants, animals, and humans, it's also an ecology. Each one is in its maximum. And the maximum yeah. of plants, you just need to keep them healthy, let them do their thing, and let them interact with animals. The same thing with animals. When it comes to humans, 
you've got a bit of a higher bar, you know, you can't just do what you feel. Exactly. Exactly. We have to get back into balance and back into the flow and realize that you can't be a little bit pregnant. You can't take a part of this framework and try and make it work because you're isolating again. You have to stay zoomed out. You have to stay with the whole and where decisions are made, you have to make sure that they're in line with context and sound across the board, not narrowed down to an expert opinion who's trained in a narrow field of expertise. Yeah. Basically, we become our own experts with holistic management and can decide whether those actions or advice is is appropriate for us and for our environment always. So, sorry, we probably you've already you've already shared your message. But there's a small message you want to share with any of any of our viewers. Um, just be open to this new thinking and uh, always remember that it's it's even though nature is is complex, the, this this framework is profoundly simple once it's practically put into action. So open your minds to this, to this new, to this new way of, of making decisions. And we will together, we can't do this separately. We, we have to do it together. All of us are in the same boat. We have to stop rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic by trying to change practice. And we have to change the management that decides when a practice is appropriate. Um, uh, for the good of all life on our planet. Mm-hmm. Excellent. So anyone wants to catch up with uh, what Sarah's doing, I'm sure this is just the beginning of, uh, uh, let's say it's the spring. It's <laughs> for planting and, you know, there's more. Sarah's already got a few books in her belt, but uh, there's there's a lot more coming. So I'm gonna t- stay tuned to what Sarah's doing. You're working on a website, I know that, Sarah Savory. But in the meantime, yeah. Facebook, people can catch you on Facebook. Yeah, Facebook. Right? I'm working on my on my website at the moment. And um, yeah, what I'll do is do blogs and, and connect connecting with people on there a lot more over the over this year. Um, and I was thinking maybe at some point we could do a discussion about how policies are developed. That's quite an interesting one. Yeah, I, I feel I feel there's gonna be Eco IQ is definitely gonna be in contact with, with you a few more times, Sarah. Because uh, one of our things is we want to offer a platform to people to promote what they're doing. So this is just really, the EcoIQ podcast is really about sharing your story, knowing who you are and what drives you. But there's other areas of EcoIQ where we want to get more into the, into the meat of it. Okay, great. And also Absolutely. maybe we could do one where I, uh, where I read my children's book. Uh, to the viewers and they can play it to their kids. <laughs> that would be fantastic. Any, anyone that has kids, I've got mine on the way. Highly recommend. Something I think is so valuable for my kids that I'm really excited to get is a kid's book that's nice, non-ideological or political, and about nature. It's, it's really it's a special thing. You know what I mean? I've got a lot of really special stories for my kids, but I don't have a lot that connect them to ecology in, in like a very nice and holistic way. Yeah, well, you'll, you'll enjoy this next book. I'll send one, I'll send one to, your, to your baby. And yeah. um, even though it's not published, there are a couple of schools here in Zimbabwe that are doing it as a play. <laughs> we'll, we'll say we'll I'm, 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 pretty, I'm, pretty, I'm pretty sure it'll become one of the favorites. We've got, <laughs> we've got five kids okay. and we've got two of, the, two of the smaller ones. When there's a new book, they're like, okay, again, 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 again. So I'm sure they'll be okay, into great. It. Well, I'll send, I'll send you a copy of all of them. 
Excellent, excellent. So what, what in the world is that? That's right. That, that's the name of the pangolin. The first book is called What on Earth is That? And this next one coming out uh, soon in the next couple of months is called That's How We Roll. Okay. And then the okay. third one is called All in the Same Boat. Wow. Okay, excellent. And I'm, looking I've just to written that. a fourth one. And if everyone looks on Amazon, everyone's copying Sarah now. There's another four pangolin <laughs> books. <laughs> They're trying to modeling the success. <laughs> So I really, really appreciate your time today, Sarah. It was fantastic. And we're going to share something with – I'm jumping the gunner again. We're going to share something on our private group from Sarah. You'll be able to go over there and get some more secrets from Sarah. Mm-hmm. Until then, like we say on EcoIQ, it's all about connection. And uh, wish you really well on your connection, Sarah. Thanks very much. And, and deepening other people's connections. I'm sure that's going to be a very interesting journey. I'm going to stay tuned. Thank you, Aaron. Anyone that wants to catch EQIQ podcasts, you should uh, join up to what we're doing and leave feedback. There'll be a link in the in the show notes to join our uh, our community. And I highly um, recommend you to subscribe on iTunes. It helps us grow and keep doing what we're doing and, and uh, share free content like this. And uh, very soon we'll have a YouTube channel up for the people that have um, issues with uh, with uh, getting the English. We'll have captions in Hebrew for the local community. Um, so stay tuned every Tuesday, sometimes a bit late like today, <laughs> um, uh, we share a, a new episode with amazing people like Sarah. So, um, stay tuned You can get, catch us on all the regular um, places, iTunes, Anchor, Spotify, et cetera, et cetera. So, uh, until then, um, stay connected and keep getting deeper.